Welcome to Daystar Rising. I'm Keith Murray. And I'm Julie Murray. Join us for conversations about destiny, discernment, and the new spiritual paradigm. Hey everyone, welcome to Daystar Rising. I'm Keith Murray, and with me today is my wife, Julie. Hello. Hi, Julie. How you doing? I'm doing good. Good. Also with us today is Feisty Ann <laughs> and Daisy, a.k.a. the Kraken, <laughs> and the little Terry. Pterodactyl, terrorist. Zoe P. Bug. <laughs> and little bitty's upstairs resting, I guess. Little bitty the cat, which is actually quite overweight, so that's kind of funny. Yeah, she used to be little bitty, though. Back when we named her Little yeah. Bitty, but yeah. she has since grown, outgrown her borders. Hope you guys are uh, having a good week, and uh, I don't know about you all, but you know, there's typically for us, I, I think probably there's lots of other people that do the same thing, that there's these themes or concepts or maybe even a feeling, whatever, that begins to manifest, that begins to sort of rise, the day star rising begins to ascend above the unconscious and get our attention at some point and we begin to sort of hone in or I do on these different concepts seems like there's normally always something that I'm sort of trying to flesh out and thinking about different concepts and sometimes I revisit well probably quite a few of them I will revisit mm -hmm. after a time and maybe tweak my understanding or the model mm -hmm. as more understanding or different experiences come together to where I can develop. Yeah. Well, and just see it better because sometimes it's not a matter of really developing the whole model for me anyway. It's a matter of seeing, you know, sometimes you do create frameworks, but then other times you, you just observe what's happening and you just observe what's there and you let that arise and be in the space too. And so that just, you know, that just takes time, takes time and experience and some patience. Yeah, and you begin to figure out, I, I don't mean talk about the art class every time, Some somehow I often find myself thinking about it, but I found it beneficial and I really try to emphasize this in the classes, though some people just can't conform to it or won't conform to it, whatever. You can often tell a lot, as I've probably mentioned before, about the personality and various proclivities of people, how they draw, how they pick up the charcoal or the pencil and how they draw. If they draw with hard, heavy lines or whether they draw soft or whether they're very careful or whether they draw fast. And I always try to get people to start out drawing with light, thin lines because especially in the preliminary stages of doing a drawing, mm -hmm. which again, this is predicated that the objective here is to try to render something as honestly and accurately as it is, trying to render the objective reality subjectively. And so you're not gonna get it perfect the first time unless you're a master and you're still likely not to. Even if you're a master, there's a lot of things that you're probably not going to nail it the first time. Sure. And so you want to begin with soft, thin, easy lines that can be easily mm -hmm. adjusted and erased and moved. Otherwise, if you go in there, like a lot of folks do, right away with these hard lines, yeah. sometimes you end up with mistakes that you can never fully erase. But and we're taught to do that. Yeah. We're taught that to be in the know or to have faith, to be valid, we are black and white, it is this way, and my head's going to fall off before I say otherwise, and, you know, we're taught that that kind of rigidity is the essence of faith, but what we're learning in the new spiritual paradigm is that it isn't the essence of faith. Faith is, and this is hard to explain to people that have not walked the particular road of the unknown. I mean, you hold to your principles and you hold to your beliefs loosely. You hold them, but you hold them like you're saying. You, you make the marks on the paper. That is a determination and a decision. That is a commitment to put something down there. But it's much easier to change and course correct if you, like you're saying, if you just put those light 
marks on there. And I think that going on the journey for truth, embarking on that journey is a lot the same. It's not, you know, you, you hold to your principles and your values and your beliefs in so much as you don't know anything that would unseat them at the moment. And yet you know that what all you have is not the sum total of the whole truth either because your innate intuition tells you that you're missing part of the puzzle pieces. And so you just loosely kind of, you have to develop the faith that says, I'm going to loosely hold these beliefs and these values. But ultimately, faith transmutes just like everyone else. And you understand that it's not faith in a belief structure. <laughs> Our dog is already misbehaving. <laughs> I think I say that. You talk about art every time. <laughs> and I'm always laughing at the dogs every time. Um, she's over here pawing me in the hand. It's kind of hard to concentrate, but quit now. You're going to have to lay down. It's more about faith in the God who made everything and the God who will continue to sustain you through good times and bad times and known and unknown and light and dark and good fortune and bad fortune. And it's, well, excuse you. It's, <laughs> it's, it's not so much faith in, you know, and I think when people say faith, their faith is shaken when bad things happen to them, when bad things has, have never happened to them before. You get the diagnosis, somebody dies, some, somebody leaves somebody, or, you know, just a bad thing happens, and all of a sudden your faith is shaken because you've never really lived in a world where something bad has happened to you, and it's like, well, if I we're following God and really a child of God, this wouldn't happen. But I mean, my gosh, just open the Bible and look at what befell all the children of God. And I'm not just even talking about people trying to persecute them for the truth that they said. I'm talking about within their own family. They just had all kinds of tragedies constantly. You know, and Jacob, I guess obviously it's in Genesis, he, he says to God, there's a point where, you know, he was raised believing in Yahweh or believing in the God of Abraham and Isaac. There was a point where he made his own agreement with God. And I don't remember what all he said, but it was something to the effect of, if you'll give me clothes and you'll give me water to drink and food to eat, and maybe there was something else, I don't, I'd have to bring read it. Bring me back to this place. And bring me back to this place. Then you'll be my God. And he didn't say, he did not say, don't let anything bad happen to me. Don't let anyone I love die. Don't let anybody be sick. Don't let me be disillusioned. Don't let my enemies sometimes get the upper hand over me. He didn't say all of that. And I think in that, you would say, well, he's very basic. Well, yeah, but then he went on to transmute into Israel. And so he wasn't superficial. He was basic in an elegant kind of simplicity to say, these are the absolute things I have to have, and God knows it. I have to have clothes to wear. I can't walk around naked in this culture. And I have to be able to afford them or purchase them. I have to have food and water. And to me, a non-negotiable is when I go and leave this land, I want you to bring me back into it. Because I'm, I'm not, I'm a sojourner where I'm going and there's a reason I'm going, but I want to come back. Those were his absolutes. And I think in that lies a seed of how to engage God properly, how to walk the empowerment road properly, how to come into greater consciousness properly, that you have your reservoir of things you believe in at any given moment and you hold them close to you, but you don't clutch them. That you understand that as you walk, it's not that what is true changes, it's that you see it better. And so then you can kind of swap out your belief system to align with the emerging reality that only alchemy and the hero's journey will reveal to you. Yeah, well, and it's like we've talked before, probably, I, I know that we've talked about this idea using the drawing analogy, as I was explaining, like, the same thing is true with making a drawing as our beliefs in many respects, although the problem is that the drawing, the the belief, the paradigms are already fully formed when we're born and as we grow mm -hmm. up and we adopt these things without even unconsciously just accepting these beliefs and concepts and principles and customs and whatever. A lot of folks never even apparently pause and begin to question that or if they do their their mind shuts it down immediately and they don't ever open that pandora's box it is pandora's box yeah, yeah. well yeah, yeah it is and one of the problems with and i think certain personalities have a stronger proclivity towards it but i've heard 
and maybe you guys have also, the term before, the, the phrase, pouring semen. I remember there's somebody that... When we're dealing with a concept, especially a new concept, I don't know what might be a good example of that, but you want to keep it, you want to keep it, uh, the lines light. Mm -hmm. You don't want to pour semen or make hard lines or pour a firm, hard, immutable foundation mm -hmm. that can't be adjusted. Mm -hmm. You want to be able to keep this loose enough and soft enough knowing, and this is, uh, you know, we talk about cognitive dissonance a lot, but I think if most anyone you know, religious or non-religious, what, whatever, and you say, okay, would you acknowledge that there are areas surrounding beliefs in the way of our seeing, would you acknowledge that there's areas that you don't see in its fullness 100%. Sure, and, and I think that most people, if they're halfway sane, <laughs> would say, sure, none of us can see 100% of the truth, 100% mm -hmm. of the time in full clarity and perspective and detail and everything. Okay, well that's great if we can acknowledge that, but how much good does that really do that if Suddenly, we move past the hypothetical there, right. and then we're in a, a situation, and, and a topic comes up. There's a great amount of cognitive dissonance there, because in the safe hypothetical, when we're all being real magnanimous Mag intellectuals... That's what I was going to say, magnanimous. Really? <laughs> yeah. Then, sure, we can acknowledge that, but soon as a concept or a belief, religious, political economic, whatever it happens to be, or a personal experiential belief or family, soon as something conflicts in often the smallest manner from the paradigm that we hold, then what we just acknowledge that we don't see 100% of the truth 100% of the time in 100% clarity is completely forgotten and disregarded and this lower self believes that it does, or at least it acts in a way that it does. Well, it's threatened all of a sudden, whereas it doesn't feel threatened when you are talking, speaking on a hypothetical. And they can be more in their rational, conscious mind to say, I understand that I don't understand everything. That's rational. But then as soon as you take it out of the theoretical into an actual thing, an actual situation, where there seems to be a little bit of a conflict or a tension, they're threatened. And we're not taught, we're not taught to embrace the unknown. We're not taught to embrace what makes us uncomfortable. We're taught to askew it. We're taught to turn aside from it and go away from it. You know, and I mean, the thing is, if we want growth in any way, we understand this in a purely, um, I can't think of the word, in a nuts and bolts way in our regular life. You know, we understand that if we want to build muscle mass, we have to kind of tear down in order to build back up. We understand that we can't run a marathon without training to run a marathon, and that's growth. You're, you're teaching your cardiovascular system and your muscular system to endure that. And, you know, anything you go to do, if you learn a new skill, I took a pottery class this last year, and I was fumbling with it and very much not knowing what I was doing as anybody that takes, that does something they don't, they're not used to doing. But that's how growth happens and we understand that on a, on a basic level. But then as soon as you put that understanding over or, or you bring it into an arena of religious or spiritual things, then all of a sudden it becomes something different. And to be in an uncomfortable space means that you are in danger and you've got to show your belief in Jesus or whatever it is you're believing in, whether it's the family loyalty or whatever. You've got to paint your face blue and fight to the death without being rigid. You've either got to fight down the opposition or you've got to escape it. But the absolute last thing we're taught to do in the arena of religion or spirituality is to just sit there in the space of the tension and the not knowing and the questions and allow the questions to be because especially in a charismatic culture of Christianity like I grew up in, the longer that you sit in that space of not knowing, the greater the chance is that the devil will deceive you. And, you know, it's like the seven sons of Sceva in Acts. They were trying to kick out demons in the name of the Jesus that Paul preaches. 
And they got a response out of the demons. You know, the demons like, I know Paul and I know Jesus, but I don't know you. And they beat him, and I think he stripped them all, or some of them, naked and chased them out of there or whatever. And whether you believe in that story as literal or it's just an archetypal story, regardless, there are so many people out there that try to stand in the absolute strength of their belief system, and there is a time to do that, but not when you're not secure but security doesn't come with never investigating anything and just inheriting a belief system. You can't stand up in the strength and soul power of your own being to defend a belief system that you haven't even examined. The time for to do that and to stand strong is after you've examined it and you've, you've gotten intimately acquainted with it and you've done like Jacob and said, okay, I'm wrestling with you here father because he, he wrestled with him in multiple ways. He did, the Wrestling with an angel was just like the final culmination, but he had been wrestling with God in different ways archetypally when he wrestled with Esau. He was still wrestling with God in a broader scene from a broader perspective. When he wrestled with Laban, he was still wrestling with God. And, you know, he's wrestling with himself, then he's wrestling with his sons. I mean, it just, it, on and on and on and on. And he realized that, and he knew, this thing has to be worked out, and it's not comfortable. His whole life was one big discomfort after another. But the nation got named after him taking his original name, Jacob, and metamorphing it into Israel. It, that didn't happen with Abraham, even though Abraham's name was changed to let the seed come out of him for the great big expansion. You know, Abram was what, like, exalted father, and Abraham was father of many nations. So. The name was changed to allow the expansion of Israel, but what actually happened with Jacob was a deep inner thing, an inner transformation. And that can't happen if you don't ever get in the uncomfortable space. And the point of that is to become fired in the forge. It's a crucible. It, and it's a, you think this is going to kill me. I mean, sometimes you think I'm, I'm either lost in this or I'm going to hell, or it's a, but it forges you into a new creation. And then when you emerge from that fire as a, an ashes as the phoenix, as the new creature, then you have a solid base to stand on and your rigidity, I don't really like that word, your solidity is very solid indeed and it's more in the right places but even that solidity after you've come out of the crucible still allows for you to be able to integrate dawning revelation and dawning consciousness as you go it's it's like you've moved to a tent dwelling instead of a house on cement dwelling it's secure you know it'll withstand the storms and the wind in the desert just like the patriarchs structures withstood the weather it was secure and it was solid but it was mobile that's what uh yeah rather than maybe solidity i might use stability because mm -hmm. like um this is something that i've noticed over the years and proverbs the book of proverbs you know has a lot of these different observations and words of wisdoms about various types of personalities and and human conditions and all that and one of them that comes to mind, it says that a guy who answers before he hears, the same is shame and folly unto him. And most folks, when they read something like that, of course, when they read about the wise person, that's themselves. And when they read about the fool <laughs> and the scorner and all that, that's the else. other people. It <laughs> disagrees <there>. with them. <laughs> yeah. In other words, somebody who answers before he hears, the same is shame and folly unto him. Somebody who responds with an opinion before they've listened to the evidence and they start arguing, that's yeah. the nature and characteristics of being a fool. That's and, pretty heavy. Yeah, and a fool, if you really look at it, the contrast between the wise person and the, you got this archetypal wise person, the archetypal fool, it's not just a matter of, and I remember when this began to sink in on me, it's not just a matter of when Dumb. we look at this, yeah, of a smart person, although it is, the wise person is the smart person. <laughs> the fool sees himself as being very smart, and he may be the most educated and intellectual of anyone, but the fool, it's not just a matter of dumb. Mm -mm. It is a matter of unrighteousness and immorality involved in that. And you don't, people don't think about it that, 
So somebody begins to say, hey, I was doing some reading or I was doing some thinking about this concept this week or the other day, or I heard this podcast, and then somebody, you guys know exactly, because I know you've got a lot of people in your family and your life that will immediately just go on the attack, <laughs> paint their face blue, and come out with their their banner and their sword. <gasps> yeah, Down the hill, yeah. To kill the other, mm-hmm. kill the rabbit. <laughs> Sorry. Julie spewed uh, (laughs) coffee out of her nose nearly. (laughs) Sorry. We'll kill the rabbit. People aren't even going to know what the hell you're talking about. There was a Looney Tunes or Fudd or one of them. It was like in Viking. It was a play like, kill the rabbit, kill the rabbit. So that's what he's referring to. Yeah. Well, that's, that's the unconscious nature of humanity is when a new concept, a new belief system, they take it, it, well, in many ways it is a real threat to the old paradigm. Mm -hmm. And you brought up the seven sons of Sceva. When we begin to really try to dissect and unpack all of the uh, information, the Bible is so amazing of how Mm -hmm. much is really there often in a little short paragraph. Mm -hmm. A lot of these huge stories of Jacob wrestling with the angel and and that sort of thing that you brought up are just a little, a few lines. Yeah. And there's so much packed into it. but Especially in the Hebrew. Oh, yeah. And these, uh, the seven sons of Sceva and Acts, when you begin to look at this, they've somehow come in contact with a formula Mm -hmm. from the environment, somebody with authority. I saw them do it. Yeah. They either joined some sect or some group that had this 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 is the way you do it and they even you know they're trying to do it come out in the name of yeshua or, mm-hmm. or jesus that paul shaul preaches and these demons actually gave them a response and they they said we well we know yeshua and we know paul but we don't know you and these guys had some uh, effect they're thinking in terms though of strictly material and of forms and of ritual you and said form- formula that's a great word formula well i'm not trying to take over your own comment i just I, that is a great formula because from from this particular instance that particular example to marketing to building a business to building a church, to self-improvement. There is nothing in the world that is exempt from us trying to find the secret formula to whatever the success end is. And and there are, you know, the funny thing is there, there really is a formula, but it's not the formula that, that most people isolate on, which is what you're saying. You know, they were isolating on forms. And in the name of Jesus that Paul preaches, they invoke the right authority. They absolutely invoked the right authority in terms of it being through Jesus and Yeshua. Absolutely. The problem was they didn't have the authority to use his name. The faith was in a formula or a paradigm. They didn't house, they didn't, didn't, as we say, own it. Mm -hmm. They did not have the internal spiritual gravitas that those muscles had. Well, when we begin to look not just at one narrative like the seven sons of Sceva, but when we begin to look at lots of passages in the Bible, you're going to see a similar theme that this message is telling us, or even through history, and we can can even look at that. But in your bringing out some things in, in modern times of what is the proper formula for success in... Whatever, whatever industry, yeah, whatever and there's all is. sorts of books you can read sure. or, or websites that and will tell you the right way to market and the right way to and to great do. conventional wisdom mm-hmm. that people have done it certain ways and done all that. So there's some really good nuggets out there of different things, but people they miss the essential point, and that's what you're driving at. The other day, I was telling you I saw this TED Talks lecture this guy was doing <laughs> on the subject of David and Goliath, and it was a whole different take from the the typical story on this that I thought I didn't necessarily agree with all of the guy's conclusions, but there was one main thing that I thought pretty fascinating. And if if you haven't read the story, I encourage you to go check it out. But there's probably been a lot of sermons done on 
David refusing Saul's armor, <clears throat> which is a similar concept to the seven sons of Sceva sure. because this was the conventional wisdom and tools. This is the formula. This is the way you did things. And everybody thought within that paradigm structure. And it worked for them if they obeyed the current paradigm, if they fought the way they were fighting. I mean, yeah, like it, this is, you put your armor on, you went out to battle, you did this hand-to-hand. I mean, so it, it, like you said, there's conventional wisdom around it. But then when someone comes along and they have a broader vision that goes beyond the borders of the conventional wisdom, then all of a sudden the old utensils, the old uh, forms, the old ways of doing it are no longer viable. Yeah, well, in the case of the David and Goliath narrative, this guy, I thought it was pretty interesting because normally we don't dissect it to this degree that that he did and look at it through such a strong military lens. And when you begin to go back in those days, and in a lot of ways it didn't really change all that much until recent years, but you had, even going back to those days or even in probably the, the Middle Ages, you had the artillery guys that would shoot arrows, or in the, the days of King David, you had the people that would shoot arrows and the people who would sling stones. They were like this artillery that you would have when these armies were meeting, they would be up toward the front and they would begin to shoot these arrows over the wall or whatever, or sling the stones over the walls. Then once maybe the wall is breached, then you send in the big guys for the hand-to-hand mm-hmm. sword combat. You had these different classes or different uh, modules Groups, yeah. of yeah of people. Some were close hand-to-hand fighters that through brute strength and skill with the sword would kill the enemy. Other people were more of your snipers that were further the back. back. Yeah. Well, so the paradigm was... And, you know, sometimes when these armies would meet on the field, they're out there and it's kind of a stalemate. Sometimes they would choose a champion from both of the armies rather than everybody sustaining all these casualties and fatalities. You'd have two guys fight to decide the battle. Well, that's what Goliath was proposing. And he went out there, remember, and mocked for 40 days and really uh, was showing contempt not only for Israel but for their God. David was outraged when he showed up to uh, check on the brothers and bring the the food or whatever he did. So he volunteers and he said, I'll fight this guy. Which is crazy. Yep. uh, I'm surprised that Saul or anyone would even go. But I guess, you know, they thought, well, we've got to do something. Well, he was young. He wasn't even part of the art. From what I remember of the story, he wasn't even... He wasn't even a soldier. Right. At least that is, yeah, the way the picture seems to be. He does not seem to be a trained soldier and part of the army. Yeah, an officially recognized part. And he was young. Yeah. Like, I mean, he's, like you said, he's checking on the brothers. I mean, it's kind of like Joseph all over again. Like, he's not necessarily having Joseph out there doing all the flock, the herding of the sheep, but he's sending Joseph out to check the brothers. There's this archetypal thing that keeps happening there where... The chosen who is not engaging the process like a grown-up man is still going out and ending up getting involved in the story and becoming the main character. But I'm like you. How would they let him? And and another thing that's interesting to me about the story is that Goliath, for 40 days, mm-hmm. that's some commitment. Oh, yeah. I mean, when you look at it, most people can't be tore, can't tear themselves away from their phone for five minutes. And they can not even stand to wait in line for an hour. I mean, they just ha- don't have any stamina or staying power. And for all of these quote-unquote villains of the Bible and these dark archetypes, people knew how to have stamina in what they believed in and what they valued, even if they were the villains of the story, which is not what we're seeing and operating with today mm-hmm. on either side. The villains of yesterday's stories had more integrity in many cases, to formally, to fully be all in on their value system, even if it was the wrong value system, mm-hmm. than we see today 
with the heroes, what we would say would be the heroes of stories. Yeah, well, in the 40 days, you know, that we see throughout the scripture, it's going to be important in terms of sometimes that is a period of probation, a period of a completion of a time of judgment. Testing. It, yeah, ex often extreme testing, like, or judgment is in the 40 days and 40 nights during the days of Noah, the, the temptation and testing of Yeshua, 40 days and all that. Well, the more, you know, you've all heard that it takes so many days, usually say 30 days or some longer, to form a new habit. Mm -hmm. And you've probably heard us talk on here. I don't know if we've gotten into it that much of discussing fields and, and that sort of thing, but we will. I'm sure we've probably we touched on it a bit. Yeah. But for every day that Goliath went out there and taunted the Israelites, he became more secure and more certain in his position and the field became mm -hmm. stronger of his superiority mm -hmm. in his favor and the field of fear and of accepting mm -hmm. that reality among the whole collective unconscious there of the the israelites and the, the philistines became stronger and solidified very strong after 40 days the new paradigm is that no one can or would dare step out and face the giant. So David shows up and he's outraged. Perhaps if he would have been there and been part of that group and... For 40 days. Yeah, and he would have entrained, perhaps, to their mindset. He might not have done anything, the old proverbial frog in the boiling water, but because it was such a... And I've experienced that same thing too. Many times... If I would have been, if it would have been more gradual, different things, I might have reacted more moderately or not reacted at all. But sometimes when things just slap you in the face, suddenly mm -hmm. you just react maybe in a much more a stronger way than you might have otherwise. Just like with this, the nation of Israel and talking about their enemies and terrorism over there, you can see it that if things kind of drag on for a while and there's peace talks and there's, I mean, like a long time years, they kind of get wore down and want things to be better. But if their enemies suddenly attack them, bam, then they're at the ready and they respond with more consciousness and more properly. Like, and that has actually been a kind of a good thing. You know, when they first got their nation back, it was a massive test as a fledgling nation. But when all of these countries came together and attacked them suddenly, they were at their best. It's when that eroding force over days and years of time deals with them from within, you know, nipping at their heels, kind of like, was it Amalek, that when Israel was leaving, Amalek would get behind them and pick off the feeble and the old and the sick and just kind of you know, like a jackal maybe, I don't, I don't, I say that, I don't know about jackals, but just any kind of predatory animal, coyotes maybe, that kind of, they don't attack you full on necessarily, they try to isolate weak ones or whatever, which is probably a lot of predatory animals, but when they're attacked suddenly, they, they don't endure mm -hmm. the, what was the word, entrainment. Mm -hmm. Well, the showdown between David and Goliath there on the battlefield Everyone is expecting, there is no other paradigm. This is just how it's done. And so Saul offers, which is quite an honor, his armor, which was probably best, to David. But David refused it because it would have just been, it would have ensured his defeat. Yep. He he wasn't, he didn't own that. Wasn't and, tailored And it him. would have been doing the seven sons of Sceva thing, of putting on this mm -hmm. form or the formula or the tools that was conventional, the conventional wisdom of how you did things and the collective paradigm. But again, okay, what we've got here is this <clears throat> champion, giant, hand-to-hand -hand combat. He's the guy that was sent in once things had been breached or when you're, you're up close. And this guy was probably, had probably lots of notches on his belt if you got close to this guy, he was so big and so strong and skilled with the sword, I'm sure, that it would have been mm -hmm. almost certain death. But David didn't fight him that way. 
he fought him more like a sniper. David never intended on getting anywhere close to him. Because he and, knew he couldn't win. And Goliath is saying, come to me. Come yeah. up close. Yeah. David's like, uh-uh. Um, <laughs> I don't ginger, need to. I'm the gingerbread I'm, man. You can't catch me. <laughs> I'm not playing the game the way everybody's always done it. And I'm not going to be the one dying here today. <laughs> right. And you can call it cheating or unfair if you want. Yeah. But David is the artillery. Yeah. And so... David, it's kind of like that Indiana Jones scene where the guy whips out this sword and starts doing all this fancy stuff, and Indiana Jones just looks at him and shook his head and pulled out a gun and shot him. Mm -hmm. It's really almost like that. And everybody was just utterly shocked because the paradigm had just been shattered, completely shattered well, of the like, way things were done. And it's like over here when the English came over here during the war. I was thinking about that earlier. The War of Independence. I mean, they were used to, and I'm not, I'm not like a massive history buff, but the way they fought Napoleon, from what I understand, you know, like they would get on on uh, meadows, like they would get in open spaces, and like you're saying, the armies would engage a certain way, and if a guy fell in your line, maybe a guy in the line behind him would go take his place again, and they would just refill and refill and march. Just and there the way was, a, it was yeah, and they had a drummer, and they they just you know like. Just like, I, it's almost like a, a, a war dance. Yeah. Like there is a choreography to it. Oh, yeah. And they wore red, for that Pete's sake. I mean, honorable way you went out and you created the formations. Mm -hmm. And then you just approached, and there was a, a certain, like you, know, like you said, you like both, a dance, that you, certain thing you did. You both agreed to certain rules of engagement, and if you had honor, you just followed those rules of engagement. And when the British came over here, you know, and you think about what's motivating the British and what's motivating the Americans. What's motivating the British is this is a colony that produces its money. Control. It, yeah, and, and um, I can't think of the word. My left brain is not working as well today as normal, but it's um, prestige and income and just ownership. Image, and reputation. Image, yeah, and things like that with their land holdings and all of that. And so they just don't want to lose face. Oh, How yeah. did the Americans dare to declare a rebellion? We're going to crush them. How will the other countries view this sure. Great Britain? If we can't hold our holdings and we're this the greatest empire on the face of the earth or whatever. And so the Americans, though, it's not about money or image or prestige or power it's about it's about survival and being able to be in their own sovereign power to be their own sovereign power to not have to answer to a king that is an ocean away writing out dictates and taxing them out the wazoo they are fighting for their lives as americans to be able to govern themselves with the issues that affect them directly it's easy for some king across an ocean to make laws and they don't even understand the conditions they're trying to live in so they are motivated by a much more basic and it's not just survival it's their values it's the american the birth of the american values they're already at a very deep soul level, they're all in at a level that affects them more deeply individually. England is its king and country or whatever. It's, it's a, more of a collective identity, whereas the Americans just wanted to be able to put food in the mouths of their babies and not be taxed so badly that they all had to live in poverty to some fat cat king across the ocean. And so they would climb the trees. They would shoot at them from the trees. I mean, the redcoats are easy to see. They would dig holes in the ground. They would ambush them. They didn't have honor in the sense of, of Britain's eyes of you don't fight right. You're not fighting this properly. And even though they were losing the war many times, you know, many of the battles, I mean, a majority, I think, of the battles. I'm, I don't, I'm not up on my absolute details of American history where that's concerned. But from what I remember, they were losing pretty bad there but they were not they were fighting entirely differently and it threw it kind of threw off the thing you know England had to kind of regroup and it was just a different type battle than what they had been used to fighting the conventional wisdom was you know they had the might and they were they were whooping up on the Americans but it was being held off. I mean, they were being held off from absolute victory. And I think there's more going on with that. I think it was God's timing. I think he wanted America to be its own country and to form its own sovereignty. And there was grace in a lot of that. There was just absolute and total grace. There was no way they could... I mean, you, you read about Valley Forge, the winner at Valley Forge, and just some of these battles. It's just like there's no way that this could have happened, and it did. It's amazing. But the conventional wisdom was tossed on its head. Yeah, there's probably... 
many examples of that. Well, in marketing and entertainment and in, in art and music, and there's a certain way you do things, and that's just, you know, you can buy the, the book or go to the uh, workshop on the seven steps to, for success in whatever area. And there's some good stuff. Sometimes, yeah, there There's is. There's good there stuff, is, especially for an entitled, lazy society, basically, who doesn't ever want to get uncomfortable or go without their comforts. There's some real conventional wisdom from, you know, subscribing to podcasts or watching these TED Talks of people who actually do have some successes because they can illuminate you as to your habits. You know, they can come in and just sit down with you for a little while and listen to what you're saying and how you're doing it, and they can say, okay, you're not committed enough. You're not disciplined enough. You don't want it bad enough. I mean, and, and here's how you can address that. And those are the basic levels, the beginning levels of empowerment. But that's just the outward behavior. You can learn, like you're saying, you can learn an outward behavior. And it may take 30 days or whatever. But what we're talking about, the coming spiritual paradigm, and this is what we actually started talking about earlier this morning before we started recording, and then decided we'll just turn it on and we'll just start recording the, the podcast. The coming spiritual paradigm, for me, the distinction has started, I've started understanding. Before, to interact with God, you had to go through the threshold of the community. I say you had to. You had mystics and heretics and prophets that went off on their own and encountered God, but for the most part, he just, he wouldn't interact with people like that. They had to be, he just, he didn't interact with people that way for the most part. He interacted with them through the community and the rituals and all of that. And what I see happening now is it's like an upgrade worldwide. It's global. That you'll hear people say all over, well, I'm not real religious, but I'm spiritual. And I know probably for religious people or Christians or just different people that, that still love their, um, their, their religious framework, that can be an offense to them. But they're not really hearing the truth of it. When you have people all across all kinds of belief systems, no belief systems, nation, culture, they all start saying the same thing. Like, I'm not religious, but I'm spiritual. There has gone out into the world a call to start living with more conscious awareness of the things of the spirit, or I might say it a different way, heart-centered living, where it's a paradox because instead of being completely self-focused in, in an unconscious, selfish way, we're being asked to become more self-conscious or self-aware in a conscious um, serving way. And so to even, you know, with people that we've talked to in the past when they're on the journey of empowerment and truth, there's this push-pull paradox where they feel called to certain things. Like when I went through my journey, there were just call, I was called to things to investigate things that were not within my allowed Christian paradigm, like energy healing, crystals, astrology, numerology, the Akashic records. I mean, just I could go on and on and on of all these new age things that... Um, archetypes. Yeah, the archetypes and all of that, that Christianity absolutely would not allow me, you know, to continue being a part of their congregation. They simply would not allow me to investigate. But I was called to look into the truth of it. I was called to look into the truth. And the fear and the very great tumult in my soul was even while I was being compelled to look at dangerous things or be in an area that felt dangerous to me according to my inherited paradigm, even though I was looking, I, was, I still had the fears that had been embedded and taught in me that this is not pleasing to God, this is rebellion, you're going to hell. And there was this constant push-pull, this, this, these opposing forces at the beginning of my journey where my choices were do I follow what is authentically calling me, what, what feels like truth to me off the reservation of my inherited religious paradigm? Do I obey the calls of that truth and go investigate and throw off the chains? Because that is the essence of self-empowerment. Or do I continue to follow God? And it was a real paradox for me because I didn't want to have to choose between my soul empowerment and relationship with God. But what the deception was, I equated God to a very, very large degree with the belief system. Even though I had, in my path, I had experienced God outside the belief system numerous times because I just had a sense of His Spirit 
more than maybe a lot of people around me because I would say things and do things and like that I perceived about God or could sense of the spirit and they would look at me like they couldn't sense it. And so I knew that I was a little bit different and even I suffered from equating God with the belief system. And so the very great service that the journey of alchemy did for me was to put a gap in a space between God and my belief about God. And it's like, in order for you, Julie, to be truly of service to me, in order for us to have true intimacy, I've got to burn off everything out of you and around you that is not based on the truth. And you think your whole life is being burned to the ground. It's just the untrue stuff. And to the degree that you've built your house on sand is to the degree that you're going to be shaken. Everything that can be shaken, not built on the truth, will be shaken in this process. And so you, it's very unstable. You don't know where you're going. You feel like you're at the edge of a cliff, rabbit going down the rabbit hole, Alice going down the rabbit hole. You don't know where you're going to land. It is complete darkness and un, in the sense that it is unknown to you. You, you, don't, you can't even tell you're still afraid that you're being deceived in walking it. But it started dawning on me, I can't give what I don't own. And so we're back to ownership and the sons of Sceva and all of that. I can't give what I don't own. By your patience, possess your souls. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. This is a covenant process. And this is what I've been trying to reconcile all these years. It is a covenant. And even though if you'd said to me, you deal with God in a covenant process, I would have said, yeah, yeah, I know. But I've actually come at it through my gazing at my own navel. I've come at it through the interior of saying, this is why I felt so compelled to work out my own empowerment from within to then have something that I own that I can give back to God in this covenant process. And so self-empowerment, true inner spiritual self-empowerment is my part of the covenant. People say it's just obedience. It is. You are to obey God. But until you're empowered from within, you don't even see how you're not, you don't even understand that you're not obeying God, even though you're going through the motions. And he doesn't want sacrifice. He doesn't want physical obedience. He wants deep internal soul obedience. So you have got to go through this journey to come into a, a rightful and truthful spiritual self-empowerment. So then from that place, when you engage him in the things of the spirit, it's a power-packed duo system. True spirituality, the coming spiritual paradigm that, that is coming and is now, is this the merging of these two sides of this covenant to form a new third thing out of the mama and the daddy, basically, out of He's bringing his part of the covenant. I'm bringing my part of the covenant. And when those things forge, then is a new creature formed that the earth has never seen before in mass. Like the whole house of Israel rising, was it Ezekiel 37? Off of the floor, bone to his bone has come together. They've all come together, part to his part, skin has covered him, but they lacked spirit. And he, he says, prophesy to the wind and... <laughs> even talk because that's the point that's the success that is the new spiritual paradigm that is being downloaded collectively and wherever people are standing with whatever their belief system is or isn't whether you have a religious belief system is it's not really relevant because they've still got cultural belief systems. They've still got societal belief systems that they've downloaded from the culture. They've got belief systems about themselves that come from wounds of being raised and being human and the whole catastrophe that have to be under scrutiny to come online with this new spiritual paradigm where you take the best of the mind and the best of the emotions and they're fused into heart-centered, soul-centered living that we don't take an action, that we don't consider how this doesn't just affect us but affect the whole human community. And not just human community. The natural environment, animals, our solar system. It, it is a holistic living where our consciousness has been expanded just beyond our food and our drink 
it, it is, it's a whole network of things. Israel, the whole house of Israel is standing on its feet and it's getting infused with the spirit now. And this is what this looks like. Yeah, it's, it's a very exciting times. And you were talking about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob earlier. And we've talked on this theme quite a bit. But uh, there is a difference between a syncretism in a negative way of a, an unholy mixture let's say, of things that should not be mixed, wool and linen or lies and truth or whatever it might be, or what communion does light and darkness have, and, or the temple of Baal with the temple of God and all that. There are certain things that are not to come close to each other or be mixed. On the other hand, there are things that are designed and intended to, and that we may have talked about it before, I don't know, that Avraham, Abraham, is the... is the personification of the the trait or characteristic of chesed, of mercy, of loving loving kindness. Isaac is the antithesis of that over in the Sephira of Gavora. I know this probably isn't a sufficient explanation today, but just so you got Abraham, the opposite of Abraham is Isaac, but then those two Isaac represents strict justice. Mm-hmm. And so Abraham you, mercy and inclusion and Yeah, and so justice is good, mercy is good, and Abraham's good and Isaac's right. good, all that. Chosen. But the idea is that those are to come into a union, those two dualities forces, forces yeah. Into this third expanded thing of Jacob that Abraham and Yitzhak, Abraham and Isaac are brought together these dualities, the thesis and antithesis into the synthesis of Jacob who was transformed into Israel and he represents truth as opposed to mercy or justice. Which is very interesting when you think about that because all of these forces are all over the world all the time and and whole denominations and wars are fought over the different values as if, because this is how we've lived, is quit scratching in a fragmented way of saying justice is better than mercy and nobody would you know I, I say nobody most people wouldn't really say that but we all fall out based on how we're made in our function and all of that with certain values as being higher priority than other values we all do we're all born some people you just you just know them they're just very loving. They want to give people the benefit of the doubt. They always want to help people. They forgive people that lie to them and do all kinds of things, and they just want everybody to get along and be in harmony and peace and harmony and love and, and mercy. Is, And it's not weak. When they do it right, they are the ones to bring this into this sphere. They are the natural carriers of it. It has its weaknesses, but every force has its weaknesses. And justice, strict justice, has its weaknesses. Of course it does. Um, and so this, I think, is part, I feel, is part of the new spiritual paradigm, is what you're saying, is learning to integrate these forces with each other to come into an integration of a new grid, a new grid system. Just if you think of, you know, the downloads and being almost like what's going on spiritually within the technological model, that we're getting these downloads from heaven or these whatever downloads of how we're supposed to be as humans and then there's a new grid system there's a new community being born and we're asked being asked to increase our consciousness levels and so if we've been the balance is if, if you want to say it that way the harmony is the people that are mercy driven in order to be in harmony with the truth they need to learn things about justice and about limitation. And if the people who know about justice innately and limitation and discipline and discernment to be in harmony with the other forces, they need to learn a little bit about mercy and compassion. And then within this field of shared harmony, of seeing, I've got these strengths, but then I've got these weaknesses, and your strength can speak to my weakness, weakness and my Strength can speak to your weakness. And instead of being each other's enemy, because we don't, because we continue to see the world, we continue to see it all as a competition and I've got to fight you down in order to be preeminent, let's have a spirit of 
consolation and consolidation and let's just expand and broaden ourselves as human beings for the sake of the human race, not to water each other down or be watered down or to have our value system watered down, but in order to actually incorporate the truthful elements of the thing I lack in order to be truly empowered. Because people talk about family trees and if you breed dogs, you don't continue to use like dogs within your group. You bring dogs from outside your group in to strengthen the gene pool. <laughs> My dog keeps sticking to me like glue. I can't get her off of me. I keep kicking her, pushing her away, and she just keeps coming back. She's making me hot. She's a little hot, furry person. Um, you bring in something that's not like you to strengthen you. You don't just continue to take, yeah, because that weakens you. And so if all you ever do is to stay within your own belief system and your own value system only, it's going to actually get it may get more rigid, but it's going to get more brittle. I mean, you may it may look like strength, but it will fall because it, it's not incorporating these other forces. And that's what I see the new spiritual paradigm, the current spiritual paradigm as being, is I'm no longer, like God is saying, I'm no longer going to allow you to only capitalize on one part of the truth. I'm going to force you for your good, for the growth, and for humanity, for the evolution of humanity. I'm going to force you, whether you go willingly or you go kicking and screaming, I'm going to force you to integrate these new forces. I'm going to force you to do the download because we all know, we've all been there where we've had a new computer or gotten some piece of software that says this won't run on the old operating system and that there's a cutoff date with any new piece of software. And now you've got to run this software or this program won't run and I think that that's we're there now. The Lord has gotten tired of the spiritual politics of all of these factions. And it's like, look, I need you to be more spiritual people. I need you to integrate the tool of the head and the tool of the emotions. But you don't let emotions drive your car only, and you don't let the head drive your car only. You synthesize them into a greater working wisdom that incorporates all these parts and I'm going to force you out of your comfort zones and I'm going to force you through circumstances to take on these new forces that can balance you out and stabilize you not just for the betterment of you but for the betterment of humanity because Einstein said problems cannot be solved at the same level of thinking that created them and that's exactly where we're at in the world right now. We're trying to solve our problems at the same level of thinking that created them and that's why it's endlessly fragmenting and nothing is working. And we also have great divisions among us because the world is feeling the tension whether people know what they're feeling or not they're feeling the tension of being forced into an evolution as a human race and some people are going willingly some people are going kicking and screaming and they're mad about their loss of power at their lower levels where they had control they knew there was no unknown they knew their story and now they're being forced into the great unknown they're all being pushed off a precipice and they're not liking it and people are just mad about it but yeah. it's for the it's for the betterment of the human race. And we touched on it before. I know when we did a, a podcast on forms and fallacies. I can't remember what the name of it was, but we were talking about all of these changing forms. It's our first one. And definitely, we see it in politics in this country and around the world that just as what happened with with uh, <laughs> well, like. Donald Trump, he was a non-establishment. He was someone not of the system or of a the established system. form. Different system, yeah. And he came in and basically defeated that thing. Just And everybody's still reeling in shock. Whether you well, like him or hate him. Well, and on the other side, Bernie Sanders mm -hmm. or uh, Cortez, AOC. All of these people are from the, like them or, or not, Mm -hmm. They are not of the conventional wisdom. Mm -hmm. They are not of the establishment. Mm -hmm. They are outsiders. Extremists and, in their way. And you're seeing this, whether you're talking about politics, entertainment, music, the old established paradigms of how you achieve things and how you conquer giants or how you face armies on the battlefield. Or engage your spirituality or whatever. Yeah. These, these things have shifted or yes. are in the process yes. of shifting. 
they, they have. Thank you all very much for joining us today, and I hope that this conversation has been interesting and beneficial and giving you some new things to think about and ponder, hopefully over this next week. you have anything you want to add before we close down? No, I think, I think that's good. All right. Thanks again, guys. See you later. See ya.